This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones and joining me as he is every single week is my esteemed co-host Matthew Rushing. Matthew, why are you wearing bell bottoms today? Chris, don't these look, I mean, so snazzy? I just, I feel, you know, really good in them. Um, I don't know why everybody's not wearing these pants and the nice wide leg bottom uh, you know I, f- I, I feel free I, I i might even say i'm footloose and fancy free <laughs> gosh I, I thought you were gonna break into some kenny Loggins there when i heard you say footloose uh, no no i don't i don't think anybody needs to hear that tonight chris <laughs> i don't think so yeah i don't know if i'd call those snazzy but groovy kind of comes to mind for groovy. me you know, it reminds me of something that we might see Roberta Lincoln from Assignment Earth wearing, which relates to our first news story today. Apparently, John Byrne is kicking around the idea of bringing Gary Seven back in the New Vision comics. You know, uh, it it he is. Uh, I, I love that, uh, you know, we had James from the Trek Collective on last week, and I was perusing his website, and Lo and behold, it, it does look like that John Byrne's been playing around with the idea. He even said that uh, on his blog that uh, kind of late one night in his brain, kind of buzzing around this idea of of what if he was able to do a whole Gary 7 episode, you know. And, and obviously, um, the biggest problem he, he said is is not being able to use Terry Garr's likeness uh, for yeah. that. And so, uh, and, and he's too, you can't really just recast Roberta Lincoln um, and so how do you solve the problem? He's, he's not particularly sure yet, but this promo page for it just looks fantastic. I mean, I really, really like the work that he did here. And so I think it would be really interesting to maybe have uh, Gary Seven back. And goodness, too bad they can't get Roberta Lincoln because, um, yeah, that would be a lot of fun. Well, yeah, she would have to be in there, I think, for me to buy into this. i just wondering, I'm sure they could negotiate something with her to be able to use her likeness, but I guess they probably don't want to put the money into it. Yeah, my my guess is, you know, anytime to do that, it would probably be more money than they'd want to spend because I don't think they're spending any money on the likenesses that they do have. So, right, uh, right, yeah, right. To, to have to shell that out, I think, might be a little bit too much. This would have to be a major seller. 
It's too bad that back in the 60s they didn't write it into her contract for Assignment Earth that we have the right to use your likeness in future photo comics that we may publish, you know, 40 years from now. Exactly. The same way, you know, I mean, we had to wait forever for the Wonder Years to put on DVD uh, so that to have all the music rights, you know. Some of my favorite shows still suffer from that, like the show Ed. Well, I mean, goodness. So, yeah. Okay, Matthew. There's nothing you can throw out at me that can top the problem with the release of Bosom Buddies because apparently they can't use my life as the theme song. That is unfortunate. I'm surprised that Billy Joel would be that stingy with my life. You know, at this point, I feel like Billy Joel would welcome being paid a little bit of extra money uh, for a song that he wrote, what, 30, 40 years ago now? So... And he still sings, so if you ever go to his one of his shows, I've, I've seen him in concert with Elton John, and they actually both sing it together. So, um, yeah, too bad, Chris. Uh, but too we're not bad, here to talk bad. about Bussing Buddies. <laughs> we do have a... We're not. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get back to some comics. Uh, we do have a brand new cover for uh, Volume 3 of the Gold Key Archives coming out. And I have to say, Chris, mm-hmm. uh, I, I would say this cover is sufficiently exciting. I, I really like the beauty of the artwork here. I, I feel like... It firmly represents uh, everything that I love about the original series. Um, you know, Strange New World, Scotty crawling around in a Jeffrey's tube, and Kirk mm-hmm. with a very pensive look on his face. Well, and don't forget Spock looking over because he's just seen something shocking or disconcerting in his science viewer. Was it that Roberta Lincoln was not wearing bell bottoms in the new John Byrne comic? That's probably what it was. And therefore, he thought that they had crossed into an alternate timeline. That, yeah, I would be just as scared. So this is exciting, yeah. you know, fully remastered with new colors. Volume 3 is going to do issues 13 through 18. Uh, and that includes the stories of Dark Traveler, the Enterprise Mutiny, and the Hijacked Planet. Uh, I'm not really sure how you hijack a planet, Chris, but it seems like it would be a lot of work. Well, if it's a rogue planet, you know those planets that just drift through space and they don't actually have a host star? I think you could maybe hijack one of those, make it go where you want it to go. Yeah, like that hunting planet in Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I hope that the shape-shifting alien is as good-looking as Stephanie Nisnik, so... Yeah. Well, she was a wraith, right? Yeah, but she still looked great as a, you know, human, so... That's true. So I'm with you. I give this cover my stamp of sufficient excitement. I think this captures, you know, everything that you love about the original series. And anytime Scotty is climbing up a Jeffrey's tube, you know something exciting is happening. It's very true. Well, the next thing that we've got, Chris, is that City on the Edge of Forever has come out. That's part four. So do pick that up. And just a reminder to the listeners, we will be covering that in a full show. We'll be doing all of the issues together and we'll probably be getting together with our friends over there at standard orbit to talk about some of the differences we see from the aired episode and the comics that we've got here and i'm, I'm excited chris mm-hmm. you know honestly i've been saving this series for myself i haven't actually read any of them because I, I have wanted, two i read the first yeah. one and then i've just been waiting until they all come out because yeah. i don't want to wait i want to see how the entire series just kind of lays itself out and and, and really just it's hard if you break a story up like that to really kind of get the full impact, I think, of what Ellison yeah. was trying to probably do there. So I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that. And, and so I'm just bated breath for, for five to come out so I can actually finally read them all. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. I'm doing exactly the same thing. 
So that one's available now, though, if you are reading them as they come out, you can pick that up. And then that's that's all we have in news, actually, Matthew. And the next item is not really a news story, although just like these other comics here, especially City, it's out now. That's Star Trek Ongoing 37, the third part of the Q Gambit. And we're actually going to go through this together here. So if you haven't read it, spoiler alert, we won't give away too much, but we will talk about some things that happen in the story. So you may want to read it before you listen to this. So... Matthew, what are your impressions here, third part of this? You know, we are midway through, so we're starting to get some answers to what's been going on in this universe. You know, Kirk has disappeared, um, and now that he's come back, the universe has completely changed because his ship has disappeared for 100 years. So a lot of things have gone differently, and and I loved that uh, we finally got some of the answers to that here in this issue while at the same time raising a lot more questions that hopefully they'll kind of, uh, you know, allow us to get the answers to, at least the most of the answers by the end. Biggest question I have here, Chris, is just, I'm still wondering, is Q just really fracking with everybody in this? Or is this really what would have happened if, you know, this Kirk gets pulled out of that universe with this whole storyline happen? You know, because with Q, it's n- almost never just face value. Well, I, hmm, okay. So as you, as you were saying that, I was thinking that, well, I think this is what happened on the timeline, at least in one timeline, and Q has actually transported them to this place and put them in the middle of these events. But maybe that's not what will ultimately happen. I think about all good things, and I think about the future in all good things. And for those people in that timeline, in that future, that's real. That actually happened for them. But when everything changes, when when they finally seal the rupture and everything goes back to the way it's supposed to be, then that future didn't happen. So I, I feel like it's maybe that, that it is real. But when we get to the end of this, none of this will actually happen in the future. The timeline will go differently. So you're saying in some ways, this is Kirk's all good things. Not exactly, but I think that Q is sending Kirk on a little trip similar to what he did with Picard, but just keeping it in a future time frame. So we end up on on Earth and, and Cisco kind of begins to lay out the story of, of what has happened and that the mm-hmm. Dominion came through the wormhole. Um, they arrived at the Alpha Quadrant and immediately Cardassia falls under their sway. Uh, the Dominion... Uh, doesn't really respond to the diplomacy. And in fact, uh, they take the red matter, they explode the Romulan home world. Because of that, the Klingon Empire and the Romulans join forces, all while Starfleet is trying to broker peace. So the Klingons are fed up with that and they just take over the Federation at Wolf 359, which I love, you know, Chris, if you see here, the little panel there, that's the Enterprise E right there, or at least a sovereign class ship there uh, on this kind of big map page they have. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, so yeah, I thought that I was really interesting. In to see that, but yeah, it is there. Question then, Chris. Um, so how, at least in this universe, if, if we're still kind of in that JJ universe, why does everything kind of go back to the designs that we see in the Prime universe with Kirk being gone and the Enterprise being gone? 
that's what I'm kind of wondering throughout this whole thing. Why does Defiant look the same? Why do we see Sovereign class ship here? What's what's want, the deal? Do you want my real answer? Uh, yeah. Inconsistent art design. Not paying attention to details. I think uh, I I I completely agree with you. It could be that, but I'm also hoping that there is some kind of prime universe timeline thing here that that's playing into it because yeah. you know we had the whole thing with with um the fact that at the very beginning Q meets up with Picard in the prime universe and tells him that what Spock did by going to this universe this this JJ universe we're just going to call it that cuz it's easier actually irreparably hurt that universe so that the prime universe actions have hurt this JJ universe so I'm just wondering if somehow See, they're going to combine the two by the time yeah. we get to the end. Well, there are hints in here. There's, you know, Kirk says these Klingons look different than the ones that we're accustomed to because the Klingons look completely like prime universe Klingons all the way yes. down to their armor and everything in here. So there are hints like this. The problem I have, and I, I think this is the the problem with the entire concept of the Abrams verse and how Orsi and everyone involved in it are telling the stories is that if you really think about what they set up in 2009, that universe did not exist, period, until Nero came through and then things moved forward. So if you start trying to treat it like there are these two distinct universes that have always existed and you can keep going backwards or forward in time, that's not what they set up. It doesn't work that way. And I'm fine with either version, but I think that if they're going to tell a story set in these universes, they have to figure out which one is actually the premise of their story in the first place. Because I feel, especially in the comics, that they kind of mix and match that based on the story they want to tell. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, and, and they do that in the movies as well. I mean, giving you a completely different look for the Klingons in the first place and Into Darkness doesn't really necessarily play with the fact that there wasn't an incursion before. True. Um, yeah. they, you know, Nira came, they would have been the same like Klingons. That, right? Enterprise would have right. all happened. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. well, I mean, obviously, too, the, the Kelvin is like 20 times the size of you know, the Enterprise, the original, so... It, That's right, yeah, so that implies... It's a good point. So that implies that it is a completely separate universe where the timeline's been going, but they don't treat it that way because they actually explain, I'm pretty sure they explain on screen, that the universe split at that point. Yes, yes, they do, because... So. Uh, Spock does the whole speech about, you know, yeah. we can't predict the future because they've created a whole new timeline. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, it just makes me wonder because obviously it's, it does seem like we're going to get something that, that goes together here. So getting back to the story, we, we turn, it turns out that, that Cisco learned, grew up under, you know, uh, Klingon rule. Earth is no longer called Earth. It's called Terra. And uh, the Klingons, that you know, it wasn't that they hated Starfleet or anything. They just, they knew that brokering for peace just wasn't going to work. And so they conquered the humans and, instead of having them basically just be another system that's conquered by the Dominion. And they've actually created a human auxiliary corps. And that's what cisco has been doing. He's been working for them. He's also a, a secret agent as well. So I, I thought what was interesting is they're really using some of the strengths of the Cisco character for what we saw in Deep Space Nine. Well, I, th I think they nailed the Cisco character. The look, the voice, 
the personality, everything is really spot on. Yeah, I, I like it a lot. Um, so yes, we 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 run into the Klingons. Kern is is one of the high Klingon officers here. Uh, they definitely look different. I do love that Kirk's like these Klingons look a little different than I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then we jump over to Bajor, where the rest of the crew is being held uh, at an internment camp. And I thought this was very interesting. We run into Chris, one of our favorite people from Deep Space Nine, Dr. Bashir, who actually looks like Dr. Bashir from season one. (laughs) Yeah, I like these glasses he's wearing at first, though. Looks like some kind of crazy scientist. Yeah, yeah, it, it... do a great job, I think, of introducing all the different characters from Deep Space Nine in kind of different ways. Um, and a lot of times the, they'll introduce Quark here in a minute. They'll play on your ideas of what you think of you know of Quark. And then again, he turns out to be a good guy. So that I really liked that. But what I like most of all is Q as a Cardassian. Oh, yes. Yes. Q shows up <laughs> as a Cardassian with them, kind of telling them, look, uh, your other the other part of your crew's fine, uh, but I'm not going to tell you anything about what's going on. I just wanted to let you know your boys are fine. Yeah. Well, what I like about it is drawing John Delancey's yes. likeness as a Cardassian it's because fantastic. we've never seen that before. Well, and and it turns out, obviously, I think we all knew this was going to happen because the cover has Chancellor Worf basically there. Yeah. And it turns out that Worf is the Chancellor and... Kirk tells him what's happened to them. Look, we've been pulled into this universe. Uh, we were pulled out of it. And we were put back in it here. And, and we want to get to the bottom of this. And Worf says, look, I, I appreciate that, that you want to work on this. And, and this is going to be a mutual benefit for us if we do work on this together. But unfortunately, as what happens with Worf in a lot of these um, alternate universe comics, Chris, he dies. So mm-hmm. um, they really just don't like Worf because in the Countdown comics, he died too. What is it what they have out for Worf? I don't get it. Yeah. Well, here, I mean, you have the twist, of course, of, of who did him in. Yeah, which is his brother, which is, oh. is great. Yeah. Um, there's a short scene there on, on Tarok Noor where Dukat is saying that he doesn't care about the Cisco and these, you know, these characters who escaped, all he cares about is this artifact that that was apparently acquired on Bajor, which to me sounds like a tear of profit coming in pretty soon. An orb. That's what I was thinking too. Yeah. yeah. So well, what did you think about Laura Croft Tomb Raider showing up here at the end of the comic? Well, you know what? I was just about to say, Chris, I I loved that she showed up, although it's Kira as Laura Croft Tomb Raider, and I yeah. think that's fantastic. And what I thought was so interesting about this whole thing is is that the idea is not just to save Kirk here and Cisco, but she says somehow where they're going to save the whole galaxy. So seeing how this all plays out, I think we've got three more issues to kind of wrap this whole series up. And I am really interested because the end of this is is great. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got a dead Chancellor Wharf, and it turns out that it's the Founders who have been shape-shifting as his his brother and some Klingon guards, and they have taken over control of Earth. 
And uh, I, I wow, what a setup here! Well, first we had Klingons taking over, and now we've got the Dominion taking over Earth. So really, it's up in the air what's going to happen with this, Chris. I do have to say that I really am still enjoying it because I think the twists and turns are a lot of fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do hope, and I'm crossing my fingers though, that it just, it ends well. Um, I I really want some, some smart resolution to the story and, and just some of those answers that we were talking about how this all works together with kind of the prime universe with why Q is doing this in the first place. What, you know, how in the world Spock's, coming over from the prime universe affected this universe all of that together they do have a lot of questions to answer but you've got three issues to do it so you can do it yeah well i'm with you i'm enjoying it so far it keeps each issue pulls me along i want to know what happens next so that's excellent i do think as we're in the middle of it right here as you say you want to see some smart resolution to it i feel the same way because what they've built up to so far is very interesting but it's one of those situations where it could turn out to be really cool or it could turn out to be really ridiculous and just a bunch of made-up stuff that goes for six issues. And at the end, you're like, okay, they never really had a plan on where this was going to go. They just kept coming up with ideas of things that would be kind of fun to play around with. So I don't know which way it's going to go. So far, I feel like it's headed more in the direction of having a cool resolution. So I hope that's what we see. Well, and Chris, uh, however this ends, it's given me Kira Croft's Tomb Raider. And (laughs) I just want that action figure on my desk because she's good looking. Uh, this is a character. I want the action figure, Matthew. I want the, the life-size cardboard cutout to put over here in the studio. Okay. Yeah. I can see Mm -hmm. that too. Um, either one I, I think is fantastic. In fact, can we just give her her own comic series? Because I'd really want to read Kira that. Croft Tomb Raider. There you go. It's it's an awesome idea. Uh, you you can write Chris and I uh, here at Literary Treks, <laughs> IDW, if you're listening. So uh, we just need that uh, royalties check. Um, so excellent. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right, Matthew. Well, that is everything that we have to discuss in news. In a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore to talk about Seekers 2 and their collaboration in writing that. Before we do that, we'd like to tell everyone about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. They're the best source of audiobooks that you'll find anywhere. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible if you go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we've actually had a lot of people doing this recently, which makes me very happy because every time you support Audible, it really helps us keep the show coming to you. So please try them out if you haven't tried them out already. And every week we like to recommend a book for you to pick up. We just mentioned Quark, actually, Matthew, when we were talking about the Q Gambit comic right there, which reminded me that they have the 34th rule in audio format on Audible. This is the book that was written together Armin Shimmerman and David R. George III collaborating. Yes, Chris. Uh, you know, uh, David's a good friend of the show here, and uh, what a fantastic book. I like when the authors have those collaborations, like J.G. Uh, uh, Hertzler with Jeff Lang doing uh, the books all about Martok there after mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. end of the series. So uh, these are a lot of fun, and I definitely worth picking up here, uh, the 34th Rule of Acquisition. So what is this story about? Here's the little blurb to let you know without giving away 
any real details here about the, the storyline. For once, business is going well for Quark. Not that anyone on Deep Space Nine truly appreciates his genius for finding profit in the most <laughs> unlikely circumstances. He just gets no respect, does he, Matthew? He's like the Roddy Dangerfield of Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. Quark is even looking forward to making the deal of a lifetime. Well, he's always looking forward to that. When he suddenly finds himself stuck right in the middle of a major dispute between Bajor and the Ferengi Alliance. It seems that the Grand Nagus is refusing to sell one of the lost orbs of the prophets to the Bajoran government, which has responded by banning all Ferengi activity in Bajoran space. Well, that's bad news. <laughs> yeah, I was, that's I was thinking, bad news That's right not going to really bother, wait a minute, that's going to really screw up Quark. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> With diplomatic relations between the two cultures rapidly breaking down, Quark loses first his bar, then his freedom. But even penniless, he still has his cunning and his lobes, and those alone may be all he needs to come out on top and prevent an interstellar war. (laughs) Boy, stakes getting high for Quark. That is an awesome setup for a book. (laughs) So if you would like to catch this book, you can do it absolutely free by trying out Audible at audibletrial.com slash trekafilm. Again, this book is written by David R. George III and Armin Shimmerman, Quark himself working together. And it's narrated, of course, by Dave... No, I'm just kidding, not David. By Armin Shimmerman. (laughs) I want to hear David do his Quark voice. That would be awesome. We have to have him do that next time he's on the show. So go check this out again in Audible. We really thank you for supporting them, and we thank Audible for their support of the show. And one more way you can help us out real quick, we tell you about this all the time, so I'll keep this brief, is to become a patron of the network by going to patreon.com slash trekafilm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekafilm. You can choose an amount that you like to contribute to the network on a monthly basis. It's a lot like Kickstarter, but you can set an amount and it's recurring every single month. We have our goals there on the page. We have different milestone contribution levels and perks. One of the perks that you can get is becoming an associate producer of Literary Treks. Another is becoming a member of our content development group. And we had a number of people who have already done that, who have already gotten associate producer credits on some of our other shows and are now there with us in our project system, helping us develop content for the network. So we'd love to have you there as well. Go check us out. Patreon.com slash Trekafilm is the URL. And we really thank you for your support of everything that we're doing here at Trekafilm. Chris, really excited to have this week uh, a couple of guys on here to talk about uh, a, a little book we like to call Star Trek Seekers, Point of Divergence. Uh, it's, it's not so little. I mean, I think that uh, Seekers is, is kind of taken uh, Trek fans by storm. Uh, brand new series in the, in the Vanguard TOS universe. And it's great to have the follow-up here by uh, Kevin Dilmore and Dayton Ward, who are both with us tonight. And uh, so I'd like to welcome you both here. Thank you. Nice to be on first time around. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, great to have you guys here. And yeah, welcome for the first time, Kevin. I'm not used to top billing. This is kind of, this, <laughs> I feel a little special. Well, you know, they always, they always, I guess it must just be, do they put your name after Dayton's because it's alphabetical, like you're, you're the first letter? I mean, or how did, did you all guys, did y'all duke that out one day, you know, in a ring? And Yeah, we decided it just because I okay. think it sounds better to say, Dayton mm-hmm. and Kevin, or Dayton Ward and Kevin Dillmore. Just the yeah. sound of it sounded better. That's how I arranged 
top billing or not a lot of times, just how it flows. I think the first time we did it, we did it with my name first because you were the new guy. You had never done it. That's true. Before. So we decided to do it first or John made the decision or whatever. And we thought we were going to alternate like um, Mike Martin and Andy Mangles used to do. And then at some point we decided that it made sense for us to keep the same ordering so that all of our stuff would always be together on the shelf in the bookstore. And so they would alphabetize it by my name, by my last name. So all, all the all the Ward and Ward and Dillmore stuff is now together or more or less together on the bookshelf. Not that it really matters because most of our stuff is Star Trek and they just throw it all on the Star Trek shelf. Mm -hmm. but, but sometimes that's they true. don't. Right. But then we decided that anything that was fiction, my name would go first. Anything that was nonfiction, like when we collaborated for Star Trek magazine or some of the other stuff that we've done that's nonfiction, his name goes first. Oh, nice. And then, yeah. so I forget there was a there was a joke that somebody made. You know, like notice that the that the name the byline is Dayton Ward and Kevin Dillmore, not Kevin Dillmore and Dayton Ward. Kevin Dayton Ward and Kevin Dillmore denotes, you know, a pithy, useless, ephemeral, <laughs> you know, you know, pithy little think, collection of the, words. And then and then the, the more serious literary noteworthy efforts are with Dillmore's name first. It, yeah, yeah, we know, said but, we said that that if, if it's Dillmore first, that connotes a work of greater import. I remember, I remember the, somebody made the joke, and it was I forget who. It may have been Alan Gibson that made the joke. It stuck, you know, man. But, it totally stuck. Yeah. So uh, I just I'm surprised we just haven't given you like a celebrity name like Dill Ward, you know, and and just we could just put it like that on the cover, you know, a book by Dill Ward. We have one somewhere. We have one called Ward Dillmore where it's just. <laughs> And we made a joke about that. In fact, it has its own Twitter account. Um, That's funny. We haven't done anything <laughs> really? with it forever, but it's if you go out there, it's just Ward Dillmore. And I think it's like the official Twitter account of the Ward Dillmore Gestalt entity or something. I, I, haven't, <laughs> I haven't looked at it forever, but it's out there. We'll and it actually is accompanied by one of the most disturbing photographs you'll ever see. That uh, somebody uh, took our kind of did a uh, uh, Bella and Loki uh, kind of gig on our picture, where Dayton's the left half and I'm the right, and uh, oh uh, merged it together. Well, see, then then you can guys can can create this Twitter account and make a lot of money because you start doing things like uh, you know Star Trek season eight TNG eight, you know, and, and yeah. uh, you know, but you're doing rejected book ideas and stuff like that Rejected book I think plots. we were gonna yeah. we were gonna use it to basically just snark on anything it was gonna be like you're yeah. we gonna, we gonna do short snarky reviews of star trek episodes or something oh, that's or, good and, but we, i never got around to doing it but you know now that i've got more free time maybe i'll revisit yeah there you yeah, go yeah it needs to be revisited sure yeah. yeah well kevin so we were talking on the other side of the page there that this is the first time that you've been on literary treks which i'm really excited to have you here um you know we we started literary treks and dayton was actually the first guest we had on uh he was talking about his novella that was wrapping everything kind of the epilogue to vanguard and so it's great to have you here and one of the things that we really like to do is have an opportunity to kind of get to know the author just a little bit and so i'd love to hear just how you became a star trek fan and and just kind of your experience throughout life with star trek and then of course you know what is that series for you it just kind of holds a special place in your heart. Okay, so I'll just try to approach it all at once. Um, I mean, for if anybody wants any real biographical information on me, they can just go to johntv.net. Um, most of my criminal record is there. Um, <laughs> the, uh, let's see. I think you hit me with like three questions at once. 
I'm going to start with the last one first. My okay. entry point to Star Trek fandom was in my elementary school days when um, uh, the uh, filmation animated Star Trek series was starting on NBC in 1973, and I would have been a uh, nine-year-old at that point. And that's when I discovered Star Trek. I truly was unaware of it being a live-action series until uh, a, a friend of mine uh, across the street who I grew up with, and we still will talk about Star Trek uh, X number of years, well, 40 years later. And, uh, and he said, no, you, you dumbass, it's, it's just a real live TV show, and it's on after school. And so I'd go to his house after school, and we watched the live action. And, uh, and he had all the AMT kits at the time. In fact, even sent away for that cool windbreaker they used to have, which I coveted for a long time. And so uh, I just, in the first uh, time I ever bought a book through Scholastic Books was uh, Star Trek Log One, and I got a really cool poster with that. And I just have always, I just enjoyed Star Trek from uh, from that point on. I went to my first con in uh, 1976 and got to meet Grace Lee Whitney, and that was in Topeka, Kansas, and just stayed in in uh, as as a fan when I was. Uh, working for a newspaper in uh, East Central Kansas, or, or I guess the Eastern Kansas, I was also subscribing to Star Trek Communicator Magazine and gave them a story idea uh, via fax. <laughs> back in the day, that's what we had. <laughs> and they took my idea and I started writing about Star Trek as a journalist, which was a lot of fun. And that introduced me to a number of different people, including John Ordover, who at the time was the editor for the Star Trek line of uh, books for or fiction for pocket books. And he gave me the opportunity to uh, you know, kind of uh, have the exclusive, quote unquote, for Star Trek.com and Star Trek Communicator with the announcement of the uh, Starfleet Corps of Engineers ebook series. No, oh, okay. And so, uh, I mean, we ha we had uh, done stories uh, uh, before. I mean, John had been a source um, uh, numerous times for me, especially with uh, um, you know just pocketbook stuff. But uh, uh, and by that time, I had uh, already done stories on uh, the Strange New Worlds anthologies. That uh, is how uh, Dayton got it connected to uh, Star Trek fiction writing and, and and ultimately how Dayton and I even met when I interviewed him for his participation in the first Strange New Worlds and for Star Trek Communicator. But uh, John was describing the SCE series and what kinds of stories he was looking for and I said oh well what if you did a story and basically gave him uh, the uh, you know I mean right out of the air pitch for Interphase and he said, yeah, that's exactly what it is that we're looking for. Uh, and I asked if I could pitch it, and he said yes. And I hung up the phone and immediately called Dayton and said, I just got myself in a deep barrel of crap, and I need your help to get me out of it. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and so that's when uh, he agreed to uh, um, partner up on this. And by that time, were you working on I – mean, In the Name of Honor had been published, right? No, I was actually wrapping it up. Okay. So, uh, so that was the next project that uh, um, that John had Dayton kind of uh, segue into with me. We wrote the pitch and sent it in. Um, one of the first things they sent us back was the opportunity to double its word length. Um, instead of doing a 25,000-word novella, they asked us to do a 50,000-word two-parter. And 
that's how I got connected to Star Trek Fiction. They liked awesome. that enough that they invited us to do a three-parter for the origin story for Starfleet Corps of Engineers, and they have been inviting us back ever since. That's awesome. For you, um, you know, just Star Trek series-wise, you know, starting with the animated series, do you have a, a, a series of Star Trek that you really just enjoy that you might call your favorite or just the one that you probably end up watching the most? Well, I... It's. I would have to go with the original. I mean, if if somebody said that, uh, you know, that you know, there's only one, one quote unquote uh, flavor of Star Trek that I'd be allowed to watch for the rest of my days, I'd I'd grab the original series. If that, if I couldn't, then I'd go with the animated. The animated just have a uh, have a great um, uh, nostalgia, just a real uh, soft spot in my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and considering that there were so many people, uh, particularly writers involved in the animated series who uh, not only were um, responsible for episodes of the original series, but people who I've gone on to get a chance to meet, um, you know, particularly uh, um, Howard Weinstein who wrote the Pirates of Orion and that just celebrated its 40th anniversary of the, uh, of its first airing, not too uh, within the last uh, couple of weeks. But yeah, I mean, just uh, that the opportunities that just sitting down as a kid and watching the animated series that have opened up for me and the people I've had a chance to meet. That's, that's very sentimental to me. That's really cool. It's funny too, because I, I, whenever the discussion of a new Star Trek series comes up, one of the things that gets uh, talked about is the idea of maybe doing a Star Trek animated series again, but with, you know, obviously probably like computer generated animation or something maybe within like a, maybe a Clone Wars kind of look or, or or just something along those lines. And I always think to myself, man, I would love to see that just because it allows the writers to do whatever they want and, and really kind of create that vivid Star Trek universe that you could do uh, like they did on the original animated series. The moment that, you know, you had the opportunity to have a, you know, three armed three-legged alien uh you put them on the bridge because that's what you can do with animation so i'm with you i actually uh, really enjoy watching through the animated series every once in a while it's just just plain fun yeah i think i think there are some uh, episodes that are, are you know um, suffer as poorly as uh you know some of the um uh, lesser episodes of the original uh, live action show but i also think that among the best uh, animated episodes can hold right up there with uh, with some of the really good if not great uh, live action ones as far as you know uh, elements of storytelling and uh, and sticking to what i feel like are the themes of star trek and, and that kind of thing it's very star trek i think belongs back on tv in some way shape or form and if there's going to be an opportunity to get people of the younger generations connected to it, animation certainly isn't a uh, uh, unviable alternative. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm pretty anxious to see uh, uh, Star Wars Rebels uh, you know, when Definitely. it starts up on Disney. Um, Definitely, and I, I think we Star Trek could learn a lot from uh, watching how they're going to handle that. Oh, I completely agree with you. Don't get Matthew started talking about Star Wars Rebels, though. <laughs> the whole show will be about that. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, Dane and I both had a chance to uh, um, to uh, meet the uh, writer of the uh, Star Wars novel that uh, kind of is the precursor to Star Wars Rebels. Oh, yeah. Uh, John Jackson Miller. Correct. 
fantastic guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's been on the show, and because he's he's now writing uh, Star Trek books as well, and so it's fantastic to have him in the the fold as as well as still continue to do Star Wars. So, uh, no reason you can't like both. Sure. Well, okay. So you guys, we we started off with with Seekers One. David Mack kind of kicks it off. First, Kevin, you you talked a little bit about you know how you got hitched to Dayton, uh, writing wise. <laughs> Uh, tell us how you guys kind of still waiting um, for Kansas to approve that. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it's probably going <laughs> right. to be a little slower than we'd like, but uh, <laughs> tell us how you guys kind of got in in touch with David and kind of writing this series with with him, and and then about kind of crafting now the second part of the the opening series here. Well, I'm I'm going to need Dayton to help uh, jog my memory. Did we meet? Dave at shore leave. Was that would have been the first time maybe we would cross paths with him? Yeah, I'm sure it was. We went to shore leave. Uh, one of the first times we went to shore leave, I think was like 2003, 2002, something like that. Um, and he was like us. I mean, he was sort of on his way up the, the ladder of Star Trek fiction writing. Cause I mean, I had the one novel, but for the most part, um, it was SCE. And at the time, the SCE novellas were kind of being used as a, sort of a farm team uh, to try to enter, you know, get some new voices in and, and see what could be done with some folks with a, you know, a little bit more controlled format. And um, Dave Mack and you and I were among the first group of people that kind of graduated out of that into the, you know, the, the first stringers on the novel line. And at that point, he had written, well, we had each written a couple of, time two books right that's right yes um, so we we were on the time two series together with dave mack and keith the canado and john bornholt and bob greenberger and then at some point in early 2004 marco palmieri and dave mag developed what would become the vanguard novel series and the idea was going to be in the original at the original plan was that vanguard would be like some of the other novel series where multiple writers would contribute installments and then for whatever reason, Dave decided to plant a few seeds in his first book and in the outlines for the story Bible and whatnot that made us the logical choice to write book two. Now, I think it was he, specifically the introduction of the Lovell. Well, that came later, but he set it up so that we could be that. I mean, he 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 set it up in the Bible, but it didn't necessarily it wasn't in book one. But True. the uh, I don't know whether he just had a, a moment of. Met, you know whether somebody decided, yeah, Warden Dillmore are the logical guys, or Mac planned that all along. Depends on who you ask. Mac says he <laughs> planned it all along, so, <laughs> and I believe him because he's devious that way. Yeah, I believe him. So, uh, we ended up writing the second book uh, for Vanguard, which was called Summon the Thunder. And at that point, even when we turned in the novel, the idea was still that multiple writers would be called upon to just to to contribute to the series. Uh, but apparently, Dave Mac made a made a pitch to write the third book in the series because he really wanted to pick up some of the threads that we had introduced in our book and was really excited about some of the stuff that we kind of brought to the table that was not in the original series Bible. A lot of the stuff about them shape-shifting and downloading themselves into these formless shapes that could turn into killing machines and whatnot, that was not in the Bible. We kind of brought that in. And then he was really jazzed about what to do with that, so he made a pitch to write book three Ended up writing that. It, it was called Reap the Whirlwind. And then at some point during the development of that book, Marco Palmieri, the editor of, at the time, said, you know what? I think I'm just going to have Mac on one side of the, of the net 
and Warden Dilmore on the other side of the net, and they can bat the thing back and forth. I've never done that before. It's never been done on any other series before. Let's see what happens. So that's how it ended up. That's, we ended up becoming a kind of a one-two punch on the Vanguard series. Mm-hmm. Um, much to a lot of writers' consternations who all wanted to get in on this action. <laughs> um, well, that turned out to be one of the, I think, the premier book series that, you know, everybody uh, even now yeah. still talks about Vanguard with just kind of reverent tones because mm-hmm. of the, you know, the darker nature of the storyline, but set in the TOS era and just kind of seeing that, you know, TOS wasn't, I think, all, you know, happy roses all the time and Spock's brain. It, there was a lot going on in this era and you could really explore some some interesting ideas yeah even here well we just have people this week actually on our facebook we have a closed facebook group for listeners and we have some people discussing vanguard who are reading it for the very first time and just blown away by that so i I like the fact that we had a core group you know you guys writing it together instead of having lots of people contributing to it well i will never stop being flattered by the um attention and uh, and and the praise that people are willing willing to pass along to that to that series of books um I, i'm very happy to be associated with it absolutely i mean it's definitely a it's definitely a creation of marco and dave mack they it was their vision it was their idea they they developed it from the ground up and we were very fortunate enough to be called in to play um so yeah i i, I will never stop being proud of that series i'm very proud of what the four of us Five of us, actually, if you consider Mark, Margaret Clark as the editor who took over the series after Marco left. So the yeah. five of us, and Jim Swallow, actually. Because Jim, Jim Swallow, Mark, who's the only other writer who's uh, played with the Vanguard characters. Yeah, Jim Swallow got to write a Mirror Universe version of them. But, I, I, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice little piece of the Star Trek literary uh, quilt or tapestry, so to speak. And I'm very proud to have been part of it. Um, I, I, I never will stop being proud of it. It was some of the most fun I'd ever had until now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and talk a little bit about that. You guys picking up on where David left off there with Seekers One, and 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 how y'all decided to the conclusion that you come to in this book, and and then talk a little bit uh, too. I think just how do you guys work together? I mean, you 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 both write parts of the story. How does all that work, and wh- who takes what, and how does all that work for you? We didn't necessarily pick up. Um, Seekers 2 from Seekers 1 and Dave like we had with Vanguard. Uh, The advantage that we had with Seekers was that the three of us had planned out both sides of the story. If you look inside, all three of us have story credits in both books. And uh, so we, so it wasn't one of those things where we were waiting for Dave to tee up the ball and and we hoped to, to, you know, to, to hit it on the first swing. Um, he, he was very aware of, uh, I mean, we read his proposal and he read ours and all three of us knew what was going to happen in both books from the get go. So, which was much different from Vanguard in that we didn't know what was happening. We, we didn't even start on a proposal for, um, you know, the next book until we had read Dave's finished manuscript of the, uh, the previous one. Yeah, it was kind of like what we did for the last two Vanguard novels because we we yeah. built the story for those last two books, the three of us, and then we all figured out how both of those books were going to go. So yeah, it was definitely a collaborative venture from the jump on this one, on these first two. Now the third the third book that Dave is just now He's started just starting, writing. yeah, he totally came up with his outline on his own, um, and 
is take he's going to town because it's 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 a uh, it's a Sagittarius tale. Well, we we probably want to get too far afield, but it's definitely not a two parter story this time. Correct. Our uh, uh, Seekers Four. Our intention is for it to be a uh, a, a self contained, totally standalone kind of a story. I mean, there'll be things like you know, I mean, because that's just kind of modern era storytelling. I mean, like a TV series where you'll you know the ramifications of the previous episode will certainly leak into the next one. So things that happen to the crew uh, of the Endeavor, their personal experiences in Seekers 4, will certainly influence, if we have the opportunity to, to go, go there, a Seekers 6. But the story is going to be kind of a uh, get in, get out. And I'm sure Dave's planning the same with Seekers 3. How does uh, it work? So, you know, Dayton, what do you write? Kevin, what do you write? How do you guys uh, kind of uh, portion off? Do you have parts of the story that you both enjoy working on? And so you kind of collaborate there. How does that work for you two? Well, it's a little different every time um, the, uh, in the sense that, you know, we, when we break down our stories, we'll, we'll, we pitch together. I mean, we write, uh, Dayton's generally taking the lead on, well, I shouldn't say generally, I think exclusively taking the lead on preparing our proposals. You know, we'll sit down and uh, and hammer out all the story details and things like that. And then, uh, but, you know, first draft of the story proposals, uh, he will put together, we'll just, I'll tweak and this and that, and then they go off. When those get approved or any changes that come back from those approvals, that's when we'll sit down when it's time to write together with, with this proposal and just start marking it up. You know, I mean, this paragraph represents a chapter, so I'll take it. And here's a paragraph that represents a chapter, and, and you do it. And it's more or less depending on the, uh, I guess, the content. I know I prefer, I just, I truly enjoy reading when uh, when Dayton is uh, doing stuff from the point of view of, of a ship captain. You know, if it's action-oriented or if, if it's a... Uh, command presence kind of a deal, then, uh, you know, that's definitely uh, his strong suit for, as comparative to me for sure. And and I just enjoy reading what he comes up with. I usually will try for stuff that's uh, more, uh, um, more science-y, more medicine-y, a little less action, a little more introspection, maybe uh, conversation or research, that kind of a thing. When they're, when they're doing that kind of stuff, I do prefer to have that kind of stuff. I just don't pace an action scene as well as he does that's for sure so dayton is the guy who's a, a little less conversation and a little more action please <laughs> i uh maybe i don't know i don't know a little bit country a little bit rock and one in there yeah. <laughs> i just well, it just depends i mean like you said the, the no no two books tend to be the same in how they break down um we typically try to split things along plot lines so that will dictate which characters um will take you know each of us will take it just depends on the structure of the story we've had situations where there was a framing story and flashback so that we just you know you take the one i take the other with novels it's typically you know uh you take this set of plot lines which involves these characters and i'll take these over here and then we'll figure out who has to do the connecting tissue at some point you know down the down the road we it's kind of an organic process i mean and it can evolve as the project is underway i mean you know we might he might get into a situation where he's having trouble with a character and i'll say something like well tell it from this person's point of view instead and or, which might necessitate my taking the scene and redrafting it because it's a character that i have been playing with to that point so i will keep it consistent and it's happened the other way too 
Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, it's kind of a, you know, and, and then there's always the 3 a.m. Holy goodness. I just had this great idea. It's nothing <laughs> to do with anything in the outline. And, <laughs> you know, so we'll have that story session where we figure out where to plug that in. And then we've had situations where, you know, we had to invent crap out of whole cloth because we realized we were coming up short on a, you know, I think we did, was it the time two books where we did that, where we had. Time two is the one I remember the most. Yeah. We were, we were, I don't remember if you remember the time two books, either one of you. Yes, I do. There's a whole Yeah, there's a whole subplot about data mm-hmm. being disabled. I think mm-hmm. it's late in the first book or very early yeah. in the second book. I don't remember which one it is. Mm-hmm. But we pulled that completely out of our butt one afternoon because we realized <laughs> we were coming up way light on story for, to cover both books. Hmm. Um, and the reason that that happened was because we ended up having to write the outline for those two books very, very fast. I mean, way faster than I'm comfortable doing. We had, We basically got the call... The day before Christmas vacation, and I spent the bulk of the Christmas vacation writing up based on the, the couple of story sessions that Kevin and I had over the holiday break so that I could deliver it right after the new year because we got oh, called wow. into that project very late. So I remember that one. I remember saying we're, you know, I just remember it was one Saturday afternoon. We were, we were sitting in my basement. Yeah, at his old house, and, and he was in his basement office, and I said, dude, we're coming up way light. We're going to be like 20,000 words short of where we need to be, and so we just invented a subplot wasn't in the outline didn't run it past the editor didn't talk to anybody we just threw it in and prayed <laughs> and you know what that's that 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 stupid subplot tended to be the thing that people at least on the boards you know the bulletin boards and things back when that book was new seemed to get the most excited about they were <laughs> jazzed so i said why am i bothering outlining i can just pull it out of my butt two weeks before the book <laughs> <laughs> There's our show title right there. There you go. I love it. Well, uh, for you guys, uh, talk a little bit just about uh, continuing on from from Vanguard and and what kind of changes we've had with the crew of the Endeavor and and who's kind of new to the crew as well. Go for Um, it. Well, uh, Katami is still uh, uh, captain and and she's great. I mean, I I really enjoy the uh, perspectives that she brings, the filters that – that she uses. She's a little bit different, I think, from uh, other captains that at least that I've written. I think she definitely will, uh, you know, run the ship by, you know, by the book, but uh, she has a, uh, uh, a great deal of latitude with the uh, other members of her crew that don't necessarily do so. I like that that say uh, Dr. Leone might uh, speak to her in the heat of the moment or even in like official staff meetings in a way that all of us kind of wish we could talk to our bosses in those staff meetings. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. and, and, uh, and Katami just understands that, well, that's, that's just Tony and we're going to go. And, and I like that part of her um, that, uh, that she is uh, um, she, she, she knows her people are going to be, on top of what they do. So in return, she lets them be themselves in the heat of the moment rather than uh, um, needing to be buttoned up the whole time. That's, I think that's my favorite part of, of Katami. Let's see. Uh, uh, Catherine Stano is uh, first officer and she has a uh, much more pronounced role in Seekers 2 than she's had in, in anything to date. Uh, and, and Dayton wrote uh, um, Stano, the, I mean, almost exclusively, so he could speak to her better than me. Well, I was just thinking most of our characters, most of our senior crew for the Endeavor, we pulled everybody over from Vanguard. 
um, our our bridge crew for the most part was not affected by the events of Vanguard. You know, the chief engineer compared to, well, yeah, but I'm saying bridge crew. Oh, um, true. The uh, on the other hand, you know, the Sagittarius had some up people. Plus, you know, he's only got 14 people to deal with on his ship, so any crew changes are much more keenly felt. And there's because he doesn't. He, we can always just say, "Well, so and so has been on the ship the whole time. You just never saw her." <laughs> like Chekhov. Hashtag yeah. Chekhov. Yeah. Hashtag Chekhov. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's been here the whole time. Um. So we have that going for us, but we did we did lose our whole engineering staff. You know, because of events that took place in the final Vanguard. No spoilers. But let's just say they're they're not there anymore. And <laughs> they had so, a permanent transfer. Yeah. Permanent transfer to you know whatever the afterlife population. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so we took the opportunity to introduce another non-human character into our mix because uh, we were we were actually running kind of high on the human versus not human uh, quotient. Um, so we introduced uh, a chief engineer named Yataro, and he is a race called the Lyrin, which was actually introduced in the Marvel Star Trek Early Voyages comic book from back okay. in the '90s. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it was a, it was a race developed for the comic book series never been seen any place else we just thought it looked kind of cool and it would definitely look kind of weird in a, in a group photo <laughs> you know? and it would give us a chance to to play with that because uh, otherwise you know most of our like i said most of our crew carried over uh from vanguard we didn't get to have the wholesale replacement that dave did in some respects but my favorite so far my favorite relationship amongst the senior crew is the doctor and the captain um, for reasons that Kevin has already gone into, I just I think I, I look at Leone as McCoy on you know just to the not, crank to eleven you know whereas McCoy <laughs> yeah. can, whereas McCoy can be acerbic on occasion and generally but he'll you know generally be easygoing Leone is is the acerbic McCoy all the time. Yeah, it's just, I mean I think McCoy has this this southern gentleman need to be charming on occasion. And yeah, Leone can give two shits right. about that. Yeah, Leone does not care at all about who, what people think or who, who, what people think of him or whatever. He will totally say what's the least inappropriate thing at the worst possible moment to the wrong person in the room. And I love that because in the actor template that we've had since the Vanguard books, you know, Dave Max supplied a, uh, a, a headshot of an actor that he envisioned in the role. And for, for Leone, it's always been Steve Buscemi. <laughs> I love it. And so I have always written him as Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Um, particularly particularly like in his roles in Fargo or Armageddon or you know those roles where he's just a smart aleck all the time. That's him. That's that's the doctor. Yeah, I felt like Leone was was the the doctor who is who just sat around in sick bay all day trying to think of the best smart ass remarks, you know, and then you know, like <laughs> then 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 he could really give it to you when he needed to. I don't. I just look at him as like that's that's how he was genetically. <laughs> he doesn't need to look it up. He, he just it's just it's part of his DNA. Yep. Um, I think he's got a node in his tricorder app for notes. Yeah. Where when he comes up with one, he jots it down. So he won't yeah, it could it. be. I don't know. Or maybe there's a Leone app that people can download to their tricorder when they go on landing parties. But oh, now there's a business opportunity yeah. for you right there, Dayton. So I don't know, but I like that. Uh, so anyway, that's that's pretty much the most of our crew. I mean, we, we we haven't really had a chance to explore most of the crew beyond the captain and the doctor and a couple of other and Kleisowitz, of course. Kleisowitz. 
But I mean, for, for in reality, because of the nature of the Vanguard series and its focus on the main characters where the and the Endeavor and the Sagittarius were supporting players, we never really had a chance to really flesh out most of the crew that we now have. So a lot of these guys are just blank, you know, blank slates. We can pretty much do whatever we want with them. Um, beyond, you know, for the people that didn't get that spotlight in the Vanguard book. So that's kind of what I'm looking for. That's why Stano got such a meaty role in the Seekers book because she's definitely the first officer. She's the one on the landing party. She's the one in the, in the thick of it while the captain's up on the ship. I mean, that's kind of a, that's kind of a, we're, we're riding that, that that's we're straddling that deal between the original series and the next generation where the captain always goes down with the landing party and gets in trouble every episode. We're trying to not do that. Um, I mean, we're going to have situations where the captain will get in trouble, but you know, that didn't work out so well for the last guy who was the captain of the endeavor. So we that's tried right. to that. <laughs> but that's truly that was where that generated um in yeah. the original in, in the original plan for uh, the vanguard series um uh, captain jowl was was gonna be on board the endeavor the whole i mean well or, i mean indefinitely and that was something that you know i mean dayton has uh you know he's a former marine he's got he's got experience in the way this stuff goes down and in the world of star trek the captain you know i mean kirk is there's no way <laughs> that Starfleet regulations would let him throw into half the crap that he does. And, and he's out there, you know, just jumping around. And I don't even know where the idea came from, but it just kind of hit us. It's like, well, what if this guy did this chest out? I'm jumping down there, leading landing party, whole smash, and doesn't come back. And so we just did it. And uh, and actually, I think it it opened up the endeavor to become a much more interesting ship, at least to me than it ever would have. If we hadn't, I, I think I got the idea. I watched a very low budget horror flick one night. Uh, it's called feast and the entire movie was shot for a million dollars and it takes place inside this very contained set. And one of the things that happens in the opening minutes of the movie is this, you know, basically the idea is these aliens land on earth and they attack all these people who are hiding out in a bar in a roadside bar in the middle of nowhere. And in like the first five minutes of the movie, the guy that's supposed to be the action hero, savior of the day with all the guns and the muscle and everything, he comes in and he basically announces to everybody inside, all right, I'm going to be the one who saves all your butts. And he dies an instant later. Yes. And so I'm like, <laughs> that's where I think I got the idea from was, to, to, was to, to do something like that. Well, that and the other thing was we had the Vanguard core cast. We had three different ships of supporting characters that would, that would feed off of, you know, they, they were assigned to the Vanguard station that we'd be able to use as the books evolved. And when the, 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 one of the original ships was a female captain. And when that ship got destroyed in the very first book, that took away the only female starship captain that we had in our cast of characters. That's true. So we, yeah. We had, we had the Commodore, we had Diego Reyes as the commander of the space station. Then we had, you know, the Endeavor had a male captain. Uh, the Sagittarius had a male captain. And then the Bombay's replacement ship, the Lovell had a male captain. Had a male captain. We decided we wanted a female captain in the mix. So we offed the Endeavor's male captain and promoted Katami. See kids. Now, now, now here's the the message from your uncle Dayton watching late night horror movies can actually serve a purpose. It always serves a purpose. It always so. serves a purpose. I, everything I watch informs me for what I'm going to do, whether it's <laughs> cartoons or, well, I watched, uh, I watched uh, two episodes of dating naked, um, uh, a couple of days ago, um, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to figuring out how we can work that into a book somewhere. 
So that's a little more information I than I needed to know. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, this this show is humiliating. It's humiliating. I mean, oh, the, the only thing that I, the only the only thing that I got out of that show that was somewhat affirming to me was that the one contestant that walked out. I mean, it's like you see the women, you see the guys. Of course, they got the stuff all blurred out. The one guy from Kentucky who shows up, who's fish belly white and and i'm like doughboy paunchy i'm like finally a guy i can relate to and he was treated exactly <laughs> like i know i would have been treated if i showed up on that island which was like i got one date and her name is rosie <laughs> quick roll him back in the water roll him back in the water <laughs> i mean it was just i couldn't believe it i just could not believe this this show was happening i watched it I was up watched it at work. Yeah, well, well, there you go. I I cannot wait to hear about the plotting of Seekers Six. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> we we're gonna call it Flying Naked. We have, and uh, yeah, it's gonna be the first uh, the first dis. I mean, uh, the nanites are gonna eat every synthetic material on the ship, and uh, the only thing they get to walk around in is their flip flops. Mm-hmm. We haven't spotted book four yet. We should probably do that one before we do. Yeah, it. actually, yeah, it's probably not a bad idea. Let's do four before we do six. <laughs> okay, I'm looking Great forward idea. to Rob Caswell's cover art for this. Also, oh, that's that's gonna be fantastic. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, and, and what's great is that uh, David Mack has already set this up for me, so I'm really excited because he, he said that his idea for Stano, uh, the headshot that he thought of was was uh, Lauren Graham, Gilmore Girls, season one. So if that's Stano, I'm really excited now for uh, this new Seekers book. Well, uh, Catherine Stano is actually based on a real person. Uh, it's a friend of Kevin's. Um, oh, nice. And so the headshot that's in our series Bible is actually a picture of her. Okay, okay. And she she has a... I don't. I wouldn't want to say she's a ringer for Lauren Graham, but she's a passable. Pretty close. She's pretty. She's pretty passable. I mean, Lauren Graham, especially if it's like early Gilmore Girls. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. I definitely would see that. I could see that one. I, I yeah. I'd, with that I'd, one. I'd go with that. And Catherine. Catherine is another writer at Hallmark, and um, I, I've you know we've autographed posters for her and editions to books and things like this, and uh, and she actually is is fairly. Uh, um, uh, is fairly new to the world of Star Trek. I don't know that she's, you know, seen six hours of the shows, but uh, uh, she's always excited and very flattered. And it wasn't even, it wasn't even something we planned. Um, what happened was that at some of the Thunder, we had a scene where Katami was looking over a uh, roster of candidates for first officer. And we just grabbed three or four names just to throw on there. And I think we left the choice Un, un, uh, we, I mean, no one, at least in our book, I don't think she had reached a conclusion. And Dave was the one who picked Catherine uh-huh. for first yeah. officer. Exactly. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't know we were because you know, again, the Endeavor was a at, in the Vanguard books. The Endeavor and her crew were a set of supporting players that we would go to for B plots and keep the focus on the main station's crew. Um, it just kind of developed that we started relying more on the other ships to drive the story away from the station because that's just what happened so yeah it was just one of those funny things that worked out that way well so this book i wanted to kind of dive in a little bit to to some of the the morals meanings and messages as as uh, i guess uh, our friends at mission log would talk about and what i really liked that we had set up this whole thing in seekers one and seekers two here about you know the the almost the chicken and the egg are the Klingons and the in the Federation here? Are they kind of responsible for what's happened to these people? And or or is it, you know, was it 
going to happen anyway. And, and so their interference doesn't play into what's happened. And so we have this huge, like prime directive discussion. And to me, it just really muddied the waters because in some ways, you know, if the Federation hadn't been there, um, these, these people may have completely destroyed themselves or, you know, the Klingons there as well. And so, it, it really had a, a whole great discussion about, and, and, and Katami even mentions this in one of her thoughts of people probably going to be talking about this prime directive wise for a long time. And I really enjoyed that it, there's, there's no clear answer here. Yes. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, no, that's, I, I think, no, it's funny when I was thinking along while you were laying that out, um, the idea of what if this story had played out with no observers? You know, if it just if it just went the way it would have went. And correct me if I'm wrong, but what would have happened is that uh, the uh, preserver protocols would have kicked in and 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 just you know frozen everybody in the brown crap and the end. Um, and so I do think that, uh, yeah, there's some issues of the, of the prime directive, but I also think that, uh, um, it wasn't so much an interference. It was, you know, not, I guess, too far away from, from, uh, um, the idea of what Kirk, Spock and McCoy and, and, and Decker had the opportunity to do in Star Trek, the motion picture, which is, you know, uncross a couple of wires and, and re-solder a couple of connections and, and help a race actualize into uh, a, a another evolutional step. Well, and I thought that was so neat because, you know, a, a lot of times we Starfleet, you know, it's, it's very much, okay, we, we, we obey the prime directive and this is why. And, and this is one of those cases where it's like, yeah, if they hadn't have been there, it, you know, a whole civilization would have just, you would have come on that planet and you would have found that obelisk and you would have seen all this brown crap and you may or may not have ever figured out, you know, exactly what happened there. Because they're there, they actually get to make a difference in, in the strangest of ways. And and I, I really just loved that aspect. Well, thanks. Yeah, they would have walked into it like, like we walked into Pompeii. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and we all know how that worked out for the doctor if we watched Doctor Who. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit, too, before the show started with you guys, and uh, I loved that we needed a little R-E-S-B-E-C-T in this book, and it was all between uh, Katami and Kang. And what I, I was talking to my friend Dan, who does Trek Lit Reviews, and he's he's on the show with us sometimes, we were just kind of talking back and forth about the book, and one of the things we really liked was this kind of grudging respect that Katami Kang or have for each other and and really seeing the kind of maybe the possibility of, of that relationship growing in, in future Seekers novels. Is, is that something that might happen? Could be. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to rule it out. Um, I mean, we, we didn't the reason Kang is in the first two books um, is because one of the notes that our editor gave us when we pitched the first two stories was that we needed um, a familiar Star Trek face to kind of help launch this series. I mean, it's kind of it's part of it's partly tradition in terms of you know a familiar character hands the baton off to a new group for each new show or series of novels. But there was a little bit of worry that you know trying to launch this new series cold without any familiar faces in it. And when I say familiar, I mean to a to a to a reader who would be familiar with Star Trek 
one of the television series, but not necessarily the novel line. Um, so Kang was our compromise on that because we didn't want to do an enterprise comes in to help save the day adventure. We'd already done that, you know, with Vanguard. We didn't want to do that again with Seekers. Um, so that was kind of our compromise. So, okay, what if it's, what if it's a familiar Klingon? You know, there's only three of them <laughs> from the original show. Yeah. And Kang was the one that was to us best suited, uh, for this core has always been to us. Core is the, the foil for Kirk. Um, yes. So, I mean, in terms of if we were going to have a continuing set of, if, if there was going to be a situation where there were continuing adventures where Kirk and, and a Klingon captain run into each other, I always thought Core was the better fit for that one. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Um, Kang would, to me, was the better fit. So that was, and Dave felt the same way. So that's the way we decided to run with that one. And I like, I mean, I'm not a big fan of Day of the Dove. But but I think Kang is my favorite Klingon of the original series. Um, I I I think and Michael Ansara's performance is uh, is is layered. I think that uh, um, that he brought to that the idea that that Kang is more than um, stereotype when it comes to uh, to Klingon core. I feel like does play a lot into stereotypes. But but Kang, I think, is great. And the best thing about using him is that we also get to use Mara, um, exactly, who yeah, I think yeah. is a wonderful character and, and, and maybe the coolest command dynamic in all of Star Trek. Well, and that, I think that what was really neat about watching this is is seeing that, one, you know, Kirk is not the only one who can earn a Klingon's respect. And I think that's important in, in Star Trek, especially in this TUS era that other captains could do that. So it was great to see Katami fill that role and, and and really impress Kang, where he has to, you know, as an honorable Klingon, respect her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other part, too, was just the fact, well, we do see Kang and Kor and Koloth again in, in Deep Space Nine, and they're quite different characters. Yes. And this, I felt like, really kind of went to helping explain how Kang kind of turns into that guy. I really liked that because I could see this guy you know, then sitting next to somebody like a, a Curzon Dax and then a Janzia Dax and respecting Starfleet people because he's had all these different, you know, relationships with it in, in adversarial relationships, at least at this point. But they, they, they're earning his begrudging respect slowly but surely. He's, he's kind of changing a little bit to way for the way he feels about them. And I just, I really love that seeing that kind of connection because being able to use a character like him and build into this, that's just fantastic. Well, and I can't take credit for that because, because Dayton handled all those scenes. The, the one thing I also am trying to remember, and I may, I may embarrass myself because I don't remember, but I'm pretty confident that all the times that Kang is having the internal conflict of, uh, of, you know, getting that begrudging respect. It is all about her being a representative of the Federation. It is never gender-based. I don't yeah, think that definitely. once he makes a comment that that it's that uh, he doesn't respect her because of her gender, and and that and that's kind of a biggie for us, especially, you know, it's kind of funny that some of that stuff just crops up in fandom. Uh, um, it seems like of late, uh, you know, these gender biases or gender awareness, I guess, um, and representational awareness. I'm trying to recall their interactions, and I know I know he calls her Earther and human and things like that, but I, I don't recall. And if, if it's in there, then I regret it. But yeah, no, I don't I think, think so. Even in engineering, the scene in the Klingon engineering when he's 
when, when he's banging around pretty upset about how he's going to shake this out, I don't, even then, I don't think he makes a gender-based comment. I don't think so. And I, I mean, I, it's not like I set out to, uh, to avoid him consciously. I was just, I was just thinking that, you know, earther, Terran, human, you, you can make that sound like the most vile insult ever if you craft the dialogue the right way. Right. Um, so that's what I was gunning for. And if it worked out that way that we avoided more unfortunate, you know, gender references, then I'm absolutely happy with that. Um, in fact, one of the most interesting things that I remember from writing some of the scenes in Seekers in our book was I have a couple of, of sequences on the bridge where there's a lot going on. There's a lot of back and forth between different characters. There's stuff blowing up. There's stuff being shot at. And I've got the captain, the first officer, the navigator, the helmsman, and the communications officer all throwing dialogue back and forth. These are, so I got five characters. And at some point, it just hit me because I didn't really plan it. It just sort of happened. The captain, the first officer, the navigator, and the helmsman are all female officers. I noticed that. I, the only I guy on the bridge is answering the phone. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> and, and, and it's not like it was just, oh, look at that. It happened. I mean, we, we, this was our cast of characters, and we were leaning heavily, a little heavier to the, to, you know, to the female side of things. But it, it just kind of – when I realized what was going on with this scene and how it was so diametrically opposed to what you'd see on an episode of the original show – I just sat back and went, well, that's pretty cool. I didn't set yeah. it up that way. didn't have any agenda. It just kind of fell in it that way. It just happened. And, I'm, and I kind of sat back and went, okay, that's pretty darn cool. Take that, Janice Lester. <laughs> 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 With, uh, okay, so we have this big part from Vanguard that, I mean, and, and you even make the great uh, Fight Club reference. You know, you know, the first rule of Vanguard is we don't talk about Vanguard. Um, and, but... It, the, in in the story, you know, seeps in the, the metagenome sequencing um, from the Shaddai. And, uh, you know, after In Tempest Wake and, and the, what we saw in Paths of Disharmony, I wasn't sure how this would ever play in and if, we, if we'd ever see it again. This is really powerful tech. How do you guys kind of keep this from being, you know, Deus Ex Machina uh, too much? You know, because it is the kind of thing where you can pull it out and feel like you could say, well, we just fix it with you know, this metagenome, how do you guys as writers keep that from happening? Because that's a, that's a nice, you know, ace in the hole right there. Oh, well, well, it's, yeah, but that's the thing. It was just like with, uh, when we talked about with time to, I mean, one of the reasons we uh, neutralized data in that uh, plot thread that we came up with was because we knew that with what we wanted to do, data would be able to just, Oh, well, he'd see it. He doesn't do it. He'd know it. He'd know this. We can't do any of that until finally he said, well, screw it. Then let's just pull his plug. Um, and then uh, so that way some of the, you know, I mean, if we know it, then the, then, you know, the potential, uh, um, you know, adversaries know it. So they neutralize him. Um, we know that the metagenome is, is, would be a very quick crutch and, and we are deliberate in our intention to not go there. I mean, that's, well, I, mean, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we had the scene that we had at the end of the book. Um, where you know Katami is very irked with Kleizowitz that this has come back because <laughs> she was under the you know she was under the uh, the the belief that it had all been buried and it's the official story and if any if it word gets out that they have it then you know it, it's it's not going to be good because Admiral Nagura will fly out from Earth and punch somebody you know in the nether regions um, so yeah that's something we we put up 
we, 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 I mean, Dave and, and Kevin and I all talked about it. Says, well, we don't want to go to the Vanguard well. Um, it makes sense to use them on, in a story like this because of what we're talking about. And, you know, blame, it, blame the whole setup on the Shaddai. So it makes mm-hmm. sense that a Shaddai-related right. solution would be applied. But, you know, we definitely do not want to do that very often. I'm not in a hurry to do it anytime soon. Yeah. And I like the idea of there being ramifications if word gets out that this data has not been uh, classified and secured and buried like Nagura thought it was. I mean, there's a potential story there at some point, you know, for, for that to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, just haven't come up with the right thing yet. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think with Seekers 1 and 2, because we were pretty uh, um, clear, at least in our promotional stuff, if nothing else, that, you know, this, you know, fr- you know, from the pages of Vanguard or whatever, you know, so you got it, you got to throw a little bit in there to make it feel like home, you know, for the people who read Vanguard and liked Vanguard, um, you know, in this, in these first two books, you get a little flavor of the Taurus reach, you know, um, with, uh, um, with some metagenome stuff, but, uh, and plus the other thing about that specifically, and again, I, you know, you know, sometimes I'll do stuff more because I feel like a character will do it. Um, Kleisowitz, if nothing else, but to honor Zhang's memory and his sacrifice and his dedication and determination to to get everything he could uh, um, about the Shaddai so people could benefit from it. Because, you know, I mean, it is knowledge that was lost and reclaimed. If for no, if for no other reason than that, Kleisowitz would hang on to a copy of that information. There's just no way that uh, um, he would lose that resource because I feel like that, that, that to him, Zhang's sacrifice is redeemed or at least justified by that crappy old 22nd century uh, tricorder, um, <laughs> you know, in his mind. Um, and so I'm glad, I thought that was fun that, you know, to have that part of it. But uh, I know when we sit down to, to really hammer out Seekers 4, uh, anything that, that we come up with, I, I, I'll go on record right now and say I do not want a Shaddai connection. I don't think Dayton does either. No, I don't. Well, what I liked about it, though, too, is is the whole time I'm sitting there reading the book, I'm thinking, okay, somebody has to get wise. Kleiselwitz isn't this much of a genius to, to <laughs> really put all this together. I mean, because you really, you would have to be, I think, almost a data-like genius to kind of figure these kind of things out. A Spock, you know, you just pull all these things out of your butt. Um, and I, so I loved that at the end, Katami's figured out that something's happened. Um, and I, I felt like that really was a great character building moment for both those characters. So I really appreciated that. If you were paying attention in some of the earlier scenes, we did set that up. Mm-hmm. We have Leone even commenting. Yeah. Yes, yes. That's, that's, how did you get to there? Yeah. You know, I, yep. Even I can't get to that. And I'm smarter than you, that kind of thing. Yep. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that was that was the idea was that um, he would go too far afield with the information that he has and be found out. Um, mm-hmm. We wanted to do it in the first book. We didn't want it to be one of these lingering things that would drag on for a couple of books. We wanted to, we wanted to if we were going to use the Vanguard, anything from the Vanguard storyline, we wanted to do it once, get it out. Get it out. You get it out of the way because we knew people were going to be asking about Vanguard connections. They already want to know when, you know, this character is going to show up in the storyline or that character is going to get resurrected from the dead or, you know, whatever. Um, that's one of the most frequently asked questions I get is who from Vanguard is going to be showing up in Seekers. 
And I keep telling people, if you're waiting for one of the core cast of Vanguard to show up in these books, you're going to be waiting a long time. Because as long yeah. as the three of us have anything to say about it, it ain't going to happen. It's not, no. Yeah, that's great. Not saying never, but it ain't going to happen anytime soon. I mean, we might come up with some storyline down the road where we could pull one guy out of somewhere. But our thing is, the people who were the core cast of the Vanguard characters, they paid a very steep price for what happened in the So's books. And they are best left to obscurity. You know, they, 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 they made the sacrifices to save us all. They broke some rules. They went down some dark paths. They've been pardoned for their, some of their sins. And the price of that is to go away and don't ever come back, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, it's, so. I think that's definitely, uh, um, I mean, back when I was, you know, I took some uh, uh, fiction writing classes when I was in college and one of them was from uh, James Gunn, who is, you know, I mean, certainly uh, uh, mm-hmm. revered in as far as uh, science fiction goes, at least in my mind and in people who I know. And he told me from the get go, he says, one of the, one of the best things you can do is know when someone's story is over. And I think those guys deserve to have their stories to be over. The only story I can imagine that, that, you know, I don't don't even, I say this with the, with full disclosure that I don't necessarily want to tell it, but the only story out there that's left to tell as far as I'm concerned is what happened to Pennington from the end of Vanguard to get his name attached to a, uh, uh, a, a school of journalism uh, in the Star Trek uh, world. And I guess, to be honest, if we wanted to, we could just say, well, it's a coincidence. It's not even that Pennington. <laughs> you know? I mean, we could. I mean, there's a lot of Penningtons out there, I suppose. But, Chad Pennington. Chad. There you go. There you go. <laughs> That's it. Yes. Like yes. That. Yeah. Shane Pennington. No, um, you know. On the other hand, I could hang up the phone here when we're done here, and 10 minutes later come up with the perfect Diego Reyes comes out from Obscurity Story, but I'm not looking for it. I I saw that story. It's called The Rock. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, I don't know that the three of us are looking for that. I know we're not consciously looking for it because we keep telling each other we're done mining Vanguard or, you know, I I didn't even want to write In Tempest Wake. (laughs) Yeah. But as much as I didn't want to write it, I didn't want anybody else to write it even more. So, so I mean, it was like Dave couldn't write it. He was tip deep in whatever he was working on at the time when the uh, when the uh, when the request came down, and you didn't want to write it solo, and actually you didn't want to write it solo, or you were too busy to do it. You were doing other stuff, so it was just up to me. If I don't write it, they're going to give it to somebody else, and that's our baby. So I ain't giving it up. So I yeah, I agree. So um, that was purely selfish at that point, and then I tried to make some fun with it, but we're not interested in in. digging up the vanguard corpses or pulling their skeletons out of their closets or whatever tortured metaphor we want to go with. It's about these, it's about these two ships. They get to take the, the center stage or the, you know, they're, they're in the spotlight now for however long we can keep this going. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, so on that note, what do you guys have coming up next? What's uh, what do people need to be looking forward to or on the lookout from you guys? And then of course, where can the listeners find you online? Uh, <laughs> What's this? Well, so, okay, well they, yeah, I was gonna say. To be honest, the only thing that people can look for is, you know, I mean, it's on my horizon is uh, is Seekers Four. Um, I mean, I do have a, 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 a so, the latest solo project that I've got is uh, 
a couple of uh, Batman books that I wrote for Hallmark that are in Hallmark Gold Crown stores. So uh, oh, cool. It's under a program that we call You're the Star of the Story, and they're kind of fun. Uh, Dayton's girls like them, and as far as I'm concerned, they're uh, they're pretty discerning critics. So if they like it, I must have done okay. <laughs> yep, they have their copies of them, and and uh, uh, I, I tell everybody, you know, go go get them for your new reader. Your young, your young reader who's just learning now, because you know it's it's the interactive technology where you read the story aloud and the and the and the gizmo mm-hmm. that comes with the book, the, which in this case is a Batman emblem for like your you know your oh, awesome. And you talk, you read the story out loud, and they hit the key phrases, and the emblem talks back to you, and produces music and sound effects. And I mean, it's really cool for some for a kid who's just learning how to read, you know, four, five, six. Yeah, it's really cool. It's right, and, but but I have verified that the cape and mask will fit an adult. You know, Kevin, this is this, this is actually his second go around with something like this because he did the Cosmic Ray books uh, last year that were more of a retro pulpy science fiction uh, riff. Yeah. And so, but the Batman and Batgirl books, uh, Batgirl is written by another author. He can get somebody else to pimp him. Um, but <laughs> my, my daughters love both sets of books and they love putting on the cape and letting the thing talk to them and all that. And they, you know, they're readers now. I mean, they, they don't need it to read. They just dig it. It's the fun. Mm-hmm. So, so for, yeah. yeah. Well, but uh, but Dayton's got several, um, uh, projects that are going to come up, uh, um, before, uh, Seekers 4. I was going to say, um, I just finished, I just had this, this week, I handed in the manuscript for what will be my next Star Trek novel. It's a next generation novel called Armageddon's Arrow. And mm-hmm. it's set in the continuity after the the fall miniseries from last year it'll be the first enterprise e adventure after the fall and uh let's see after that kevin and i will start to work on seekers four um i'm actually contracted to write a media tie-in novel for another property but i'm not yet allowed to say what that property is i've got the outline turned into the editor i've signed the contracts i'm ready to start writing the manuscript anytime now but i'm still not allowed to talk about what it is it's not Desperate Housewives, right? Not this time, no. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm hoping that I'll be able to make an announcement within the within the month because we're supposed to be getting some publicity info at some point. Yeah, I'm uh, just going to – I'm going to out it. It's Girl Meets World. Oh, that's uh, okay. okay. <laughs> you know, my fiancé really likes that show, so there you go. The Maid Show from Lifetime. What is it, Devious nice. Maids? Oh, Devious <laughs> Maids or whatever? Uh, I don't know what it is. No, I don't know what it is. Um, oh, and then after, after that, let's see um, – I'll be doing a short story. Well, my, my, I'm supposed to write a short story for a series of anthologies uh, edited by uh, noted horror writer Jonathan Mayberry. He co-developed a series called V Wars, which is a vampire, uh, a vampire uh, uprising thing in the in the modern day. And uh, he's edited several anthologies, and I'm going to write a story for what will be the fifth anthology in that uh, series if I can get off my butt and write it. So that's what I got going immediately, and there's other stuff on the horizon. So where can everybody find you guys online? Kevin, where can people find you? My my online presence is is at at the current time uh, limited to Facebook. Um, okay. You know, I, I know that 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 sounds pretty uh, lackadaisical, but uh, um, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a website. I'm not blogging. Um, I rarely use Twitter. Um, but I'm goofing off on Facebook more or less all the time. So, uh, so yeah, just find me there. My, my page is open. Uh, say hi there. If somebody wants to say hi to me in person, uh, uh, coming up, I will be at uh, New York comic con that has a preview night on, uh, 
Thursday the uh, 10th, I believe, of October, and then runs, wait, that's 9th, I'm sorry, Thursday the 9th, and then runs 10, 11, 12 um, of October at the Javits Center in New York City. Oh, awesome. So, and we've got, we've got I, we don't have any other, I, I guess, uh, personal appearances scheduled. I mean, there's a possibility we might do a signing in Kansas City, but Dayton, I think, is still working on that. Yeah, I haven't confirmed anything. So. Awesome. And then Dayton, where can everybody find you online? I'm still at daytonward.com, which is basically okay. just a shortcut to my blog. Excellent. Um, I don't even have a regular website anymore. I just I ditched all that. Um, so it's just it'll bring you to my blog, and then I have links there for Facebook and Twitter and email and all that good stuff. Well, guys, I've got to say it's been so much fun having you both on. You guys riding together, and I, I can tell you guys get along really well. And and um, but it's just been so much fun. I I really enjoy the seeker series so far i think it's it, it's a great idea um, and i'm glad to have tos era books that aren't focused on kirk spock and mccoy uh, but getting to explore that universe and uh, it, it's been a blast and i i hope that this will be a series that you know continues just like uh, vanguard does you know would would love to have seven eight nine books ten books in the series i, I think it'd be great well, well, thank you. Your 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 lips to our editor's ears. <laughs> well, we know Margaret listens, so she listens to the show. I think so. I mean, unlike Vanguard, you know, Vanguard doesn't have a Vanguard had a defined ending from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. We yeah, we knew up, we knew our exit. Yeah. We well, more or less. I mean, we changed up some of the wickets that we had to go through and all that. But I mean, for the most part, we knew how it was going to end. This has no ending. It's an open ended thing. It's more episodic in nature. Um, I, I liken it to something like the West Wing, where there will be character arcs that might burn hot over multiple books, um, but for the most part, the a plot, the, the the meat of each book will be more self-contained. Um, it, the big the big numbers on the front should help with the reading order. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Wait, what? What's his number one again? Well, I mean, that was that's you know we we I know I'm sure you when you talked with Dave Mack you you covered yeah. the, the the whole cover yes. concept thing, yeah, but yep. I mean that was strictly a nerd boy thing for us to be able to do. Um, in fact, we even originally pitched the idea that there would be no titles for each of the books, it would just be mm-hmm. Seekers One, Seekers Two, Seekers Three, and they liked that idea for a while, and then all of a sudden that didn't work anymore. Um, the the sales department couldn't figure out how to sell you know a book without a title. I'm like, we'll just call it Seekers 1, Seekers 2. Well, you can't search for that. I'm like, all right, take it away for a moment that I know how databases work. Yes. You know, <laughs> you know, so, so it's just like, it was just, you know, whatever. It was a, it was a relatively, it was like, well, okay, we'll just, you know, yeah. fine. We'll I, just, I, spent, I spent the next hour trying to find Iron Man 2. And it's like, oh my gosh, they're right. I, don't, I can't find it anywhere. There's Iron Man and Iron Man 3. What happened to the middle one? What the hell? Oh my gosh. Where am I? I don't even know which one to watch now. But if you'll notice, you know, the, cup, the type or the title isn't, you know, is not prominent compared to the, to the right. big fat number on the front. So, you know, it's, that was our compromise. Like, yeah, you can have a title, but, it, you know, can we have it basically the same size as our names or something? We didn't want it to blow up the cover. Uh, so, yeah. You know, you win some, you lose some. You pick your house. They let us yeah. have the book series for crying out loud. The least we can do. There is you go. Out. And I'm glad they did. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so glad you guys got a chance to come on. Thank you so much. Uh, well, thank you, Kevin. You're welcome back anytime. Of course, Dayton, you know that as well. So, uh, <laughs> you were, I was wondering how they were going to go to that because Kevin, you're welcome all the time. Eh, yeah. No, 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 no. That other SOB yeah. at home. We 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 couldn't have we couldn't. We're gonna have get had Kevin back show. so you can challenge Dayton's record. 
of oh, most appearances yeah, on literary tracks. I, I, yeah, again with the overpromising bit. I mean, I'm I'm happy to come <laughs> on anytime I'm invited, but uh, I you know I mean your mileage may vary as far as true entertainment value. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, guys, and y'all have a great night. Thanks. Thank Thanks, guys. Well, Matthew, that was a lot of fun. I'm glad that we had both Dayton and Kevin together. Of course, Dayton is uh, what I would call a regular here on the show with the number of appearances that he's had, but it was the first time having Kevin on. Having them both together was certainly the ideal opportunity. It was a lot of fun, Chris, especially getting to talk a lot about uh, the, the background there, their work on Vanguard, and then that kind of flowing through to what they're going to be doing with Seekers, what they've already done here in Seekers 2, and then the future for Seekers as well. And so just a fantastic conversation. I'm really glad we got a chance to talk to Kevin and uh, hope he'll come back. And, and of course, Dayton is always welcome on the show as well because, well, I mean, honestly, Chris, without Dayton, I don't know if this show would have taken off like it did. You know, starting off with an interview with an author like him, I think really helped set the bar for what we try to do here for the listeners. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget, never, I, I don't really think I'll ever be repay Dayton for that. Yeah, I totally agree. Absolutely. So Seekers was wonderful and looking forward to the future as well myself, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about here on the network this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. They, they look at the original series episodes and they see thematically what it is that works and they pick that in order to explore like a different side of it. Earl Grey. No, do you guys seriously no. not know why they have red and green lights? No. Not all of us have read Ships of the Line. Okay, no, 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 no. Wait, is this in Ships of the Line? I'm only in like chapter no, one. No, no. I'm talking about like real ships today. Have you been on a ship, Darren? The Orb. Them being adversarial, I, I don't think necessarily was the only way they could have gone. Um, it makes for a great story, but it just made me wonder, just in a possible universe, what would have happened? I think it's important, though, that she, as the religious leader, is not sold on the idea that this outsider is their emissary. To the journey! Endgame cannot make my list. <laughs> I, uh, I don't have as much hatred for Endgame as you or apparently everybody else does. Oh, I've, not that I'm bitter or anything, no. Warp 5. So I would argue in the case of what Paxton is doing here in firing a weapon at San Francisco, which luckily missed and went into the bay. And I don't know if, I guess George and Gracie aren't there, right, in the 22nd century, so they're okay, but... The Ready Room. They could have really diverged with what we knew of Will and made Thomas's own unique character. I mean, he is, but like, if we can get multiple Burial episodes, why, you know, why can't Thomas Riker have more than one episode? <laughs> Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And he happens to figure it all out. Yeah, uh, that, that's enough to drive an audience. We know we need to get spirit. Will Wheaton on the show because I will defend Wesley in this episode against the guy who played Wesley. <laughs> okay. Commentary, Trek stars. There was an interview, I think, with, with JJ where they were talking to him and he was saying that, you know, oh, my, my dad was friends with Nicholas Meyer back in the day. I remember going to Meyer's house when I was a kid. And he saw he had a whole bunch of really cool things in his house, and I thought, I would like to break some of the things. Literary treks. But I do like I want to see cover. Spock with a perm. Oh, gosh. Well, I think I've got a Photoshop yeah. project in my future with this cover right here. Melodic treks. 
It's like, oh, this wow. happened. Oh, oh, this is so good. <laughs> it was. No it was just amazing. He, uh, reacts. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. We have new Trek talk for you every single day of the week, and we cover all the series, of course, music, books, science, even work beyond Star Trek by Star Trek creatives. Lots of stuff for you there. You can find them everywhere you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, one way that you can help us out a great deal is to subscribe to the shows. If you normally just stream the shows in iTunes or in the podcast app, or if you go to our website and you stream from there, if you use an iOS device, go in the iTunes application on your desktop or or go in the podcasts app on your iPhone or your iPad and hit subscribe. That actually makes a real difference in where we place in search results and it helps other fans of Star Trek books and comics find literary treks as they're searching the iTunes store. Another way you can help us out while you're there is to leave us a star rating and a written review. Those also affect how we place in search results beyond the fact that we just want to hear what you think about the show. We love hearing from you, so we hope you'll take the time to do that for us. If you're not an Apple user, we are everywhere for you as well. We're on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, BlackBerry, Windows Phone directories. We're all over the place. SoundCloud, you can also go to our website and stream or get the RSS feed and drop that into a third-party application or other tool. So I'm, I think we've got everyone covered, Matthew. You can also directly download files. If you go to our website, look in the SoundCloud player. There's a little download button in the upper right-hand corner of that player. And I'm actually surprised, Matthew, at how many people still download audio files for podcasts. Well, Chris, you know, for me, I, I have the master feed there on my iTunes. And it's great because uh, I sit here for work every day and... I just go through the list and like, okay, which Trek FM podcast haven't I listened to yet? And I just click that and it's fantastic, you know, so it does download for me on my computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's great. I, I love it. Um, having the master feed, uh, it's fantastic. And of course, we get special messages every once in a while. We, you know, we had that great audio commentary uh, for mm-hmm. Star Trek from 09. And uh, yeah. we had your uh, nice message to the listeners a few weeks ago. So Begging for money. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, which is hugely important to us because, uh, you know, I mean, especially yeah. just speaking for you and me here at Literary Treks, uh, it is actually a pretty expensive show to do with all the books and it comics is. that we buy. <laughs> yeah, we buy we buy a lot of books and comics every single week, definitely. But yeah, the Master Feed is great. And if you listen to Mission Log, John and Ken on Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, they're part of our network now. And those episodes are also in the Master Feed. It's a great way for you to get all the Trek FM shows that you've been listening to for years now, along with the Mission Log. So those are ways that you can help us out. And of course, we just mentioned uh, Patreon, which is what my message was about. Patreon.com slash Trekafilm. Please hop over there and check out the ways you can help us there. Now, if you'd like to send feedback on today's show, we would love to know what you think about Seekers, what you think about the comics that we talked about in news today. There are many ways that you can get in touch with us. You can go to our website at trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Just choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks. And that will come to both Matthew and me by email and social media. You'll find us on Twitter. Our username is is Trek FM. Facebook.com slash Trek FM is our main brand page there on Facebook. But we also have our new listeners discussion group on Facebook called the Babel Conference, which as we mentioned last week, I'm sure, and maybe the week before, it's fairly new. So we've mentioned it a few times now, is a replacement for the forums on our website. It's a closed group, but it's open to all Trek FM listeners. So just go over there, click join. I'll let you into the group. 
The way you can find it is to go to Facebook and type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search bar or go to our website and click discussion on the menu bar and that'll take you right over there. And it's been very vibrant so far. We've got a lot of activity in that group. So I hope you'll come over and join us as well for some conversation. So Matthew, when you're not hanging out in the closet with Roberta Lincoln trying on other great 60s fashions, where can people find you? Well, Chris, of course, you can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02. You can also find me doing things like talking about Deep Space Nine, which I know is shocking for all the people listening to Trek FM on the Orb. And Chris, I also have my own personal website at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. And also, you've been working on that personal comic of yours that you told us about last week too, right? Yes, Chris. Uh, (laughs) Still in the early stages, don't want to give too much away. Now, Chris, when you're not uh, looking up on the internet pictures of Kira Croft trying to find one big enough to turn into a full page spread out on your wall there, where can we find you? Oh, I'm, I'm not even going to do that. I'm going to find the picture. I'm going to go send it over to our friend Tommy Kraft, who's doing Star Trek Horizon. He has a 3D printer. Oh, so that's awesome. I'm going to send that there to you him and see if you can print a life-size 3D one for me. might be kind of expensive to get the materials, though, and shipping is going to be hell over here to Japan. I Chris, but I think it's going to be worth it. <laughs> it might be worth it, yeah. And if that works out, then I can find a picture of Leffler. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Kira right. Croft and, so, and Leffler together oh, that'd again. A, that would be a great adventure show, right? Kira Croft and Leffler. Oh, man. Too many rules, though. They go spelunking. <laughs> they find treasures. But they have very strict guidelines that they work within. And Kira Croft is always like, they're more like guidelines, not rules. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Well, you can find me on social media. My username on Twitter is C Brian Jones, the letter C and Brian with a Y. I'm also on Facebook, facebook.com slash C Brian Jones. So find me there. And I have my website at cbrianjones.com. Elsewhere on the network, I do a lot of different shows. Of course, The Orb with Matthew, also Warp 5, Matterstream Continuing Mission, The Ready Room Hyper Channel, and the official podcast of Star Trek Axanar, which I co-host with Axanar creator and executive producer Alec Peters. So check out that show if you want to find out what's going on with the production of that great new fan film. Before we let you go, don't forget about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. Go pick up The 34th Rule by David R. George III and Armin Shimmerman in audio format or anything else that you like. If you decide not to stick with Audible, you'll get to keep the book, so there's nothing to lose. But when you try them out, it really does help us here at Literary Treks. The URL for that is audibletrial.com slash trekafilm, audibletrial.com slash trekafilm. And we really thank Audible for supporting the show, and we thank you for supporting Audible. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.